Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another hour of podcasting greatness on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and everywhere else that good podcasts are sold, as well as with video here on YouTube. Hey, everybody. This week, I am welcoming back Dr. Jonas Kaplan. He is a cognitive neuroscientist who works out of Los Angeles. Hi, Jonas. Welcome to the show. Chris, good to be back. Yes, very glad to have you back. It has been too long, I think. I have so enjoyed our conversations. And, um, you know, we started out pretty simply trying to, uh, trying to break down what the brain is, what it's doing, how it works, you know, the, 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 you know simple questions that don't plague too many people these days. And, <laughs> um, and of course, this has all been, for me, a quest of understanding people, understanding thought, understanding belief, and understanding why it is or how it is that people can enter into extremist headspaces or high control groups or give over really too much of themselves to things. And that's, that's where my interest lies. But then it became, in the course of studying psychology and sociology and, and how and why people and groups operate, um, that led to the brain, because of course it would, you know, how to, how it's the third leg of trying to understand this thing of behavior, human behavior. Why do we do what we do? Why do we act the way we do? And you have been a, a, an enormous help to me and I hope, and I think my viewers in breaking down and trying to figure out how some of this stuff works. So today, I thought we might take a little flight of fancy, a little bit of, a, of, a, of an approach into the future, because this guy, Elon Musk, keeps throwing into the public conversation, and good for him for doing it, that there is this inevitable, it seems almost destined that there will be this hybrid or cyborg or bionic connection between people and machines. As a neuroscientist, I guess my first question for you is just in a general sense, what's your attitude or what, and what do you, what do your colleagues, if, if, if this ever come up, do you guys talk about this stuff? And if so, is it science fiction for you guys or is there some science fact now? So if the question is, are we all going to be transhumanist cyborgs one day? Right. <laughs> I say yes. I think we probably are. Now, does it come up in our conversations in neuroscience? Well, there are fields of neuroscience that work directly on brain-computer interfaces. It's not really my field. So for me and, and for my close colleagues, it is really more of a uh, task of imagination and a, a, a fun experiment in, in science fiction. Um, but with a lot of things in neuroscience, you know, I've seen concepts that I thought were distant science fictions become reality. I mean, we can do things like brain reading with fMRI right now that are, that are pretty advanced and pretty amazing. And so I, I really try uh, not to count anything out. And um, I, I realize that we're, I don't think we're on the verge of any t uh, massive technology that changes our, our relationship with machines. But if I think out into the way, way distant future, I think it, it probably is inevitable in some degree. I, uh, I, I, I think I look at it that same way. I do think eventually we're seeing the future. You know, if, if other, of course, if our planet survives, if our climate survives, if all of that happens too. 
But um, but barring any other existential crisis, this itself seems to be being pushed forward as a solution to a potential existential crisis of our own making, which is called AI, artificial intelligence, right? And I and this is this gets more closely, I think, to your field because you're a cognitive neuroscientist. You study how we think. How, if you were gonna, you know, and I've never asked you this the whole time we've been we've been talking, but um, but if you were gonna rate, maybe I don't know, on a scale of zero to t- you know one to ten or something, in terms of like, you know, this this realization of a, a of a of a vision where we know how we think to the point that we could get in there and start manipulating thought, recording it, influencing it mechanically. Where would you say we are even in our understanding of being able to accomplish such a feat at this point? I think we're chipping away at it. I mean, I think eventually we will understand it. I don't think there's any um, real reason why we couldn't. It's just a matter of time and reverse engineering and a a lot of effort put into understanding something. With respect to our eventual relationship with machines, I think it's also important to point out that we already have this relationship, right? We already have a very close interaction between our minds and machines. We have already offloaded a lot of our cognitive processes onto machines. You know, we have a simple example is calculation. I, I do almost no calculation anymore because I can do it on my computer that I have attached to me, not via direct wires into my brain, but via the manipulation of my fingers and feedback through my eyes. And so we have these close relationships with machines right now that we're constantly touching them. I mean, I, I, touching my computer basically all day long in physical contact with it, right? So the the chain from having this external relationship with machines to having a, a direct connection, I think is not as big of a change as, as we sometimes imagine. I think it's an incremental change for us, really. I think you're right. I think you're right. In fact, Musk himself on Rogan pointed out how we are almost already hybrids. And I, I, I'll push back a little bit on that, but I, I get his point, you know, because we walk around with our phones, you know, and, and our phones have become external memory for our brains to the point now with our lives where when I grew up, probably when you did, we memorized phone numbers on rotary dial phones, <laughs> you know, and, um, and then on touch tone. But now... I couldn't tell you my wife's phone number. And that's, you know, and it's not even a thing of I feel ashamed of that because it's so much now our reality that it's, you know, that we're so technologically independent or dependent. Through what the costs and benefits of that are, right? I mean, maybe uh, Elon is is focused a lot on on the benefits, but probably important to also consider the costs that the fact that we're offloading this memory process onto a machine means that we're not practicing memorizing things in the same way and we might not be as good at it for when we do need it. Um, same thing is true for math. I mean, it's definitely harder for me to do simple arithmetic than it that was for me when I was in seventh grade, say, for example. So there's definitely some costs and it's definitely worth considering what those costs are when, whenever we're going to implement a technology like this. That's very true. And we find some... Uh, again, to get you know the the conjecture of it all, we find some science fiction stories and future realities presented to us where where we've done this work, made these strides, and then realized we we messed up. We we went too far. We gave too much. We were too reliant, 
And I think we see this like in Battlestar, in the latest version of Battlestar Galactica, where they didn't have the machines doing stuff too much. In fact, they were fighting the Cy- you know, the, the Cylons. Um, and other, uh, there's a Dune, also in Dune. Uh, this was a this was a theme that they you couldn't have any thinking machines. The entire galaxy sort of teamed up and decided this was a good idea because it had been so badly, <laughs> you know, in some distant past had been so messed up. So one wonders if that is in our future, if we are if we are racing to this point where maybe we haven't really thought the thought through well enough. And that's what plagues me at night. Um, I look at how social media has developed and how we are now becoming aware of the real dangers and threats to our ability to get along with each other. Completely unintended consequence. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm absolutely positive Zuckerberg, Jack, these guys were not plotting to divide America and the or the world, really, in the way that it has been because of that technology. Do you think um, right now, I, you know, I think the thing that I am most concerned about with this and I wanted to talk to you about is how, if we don't understand how we think yet, to the degree that we maybe should, or how we come to decisions, conclusions, how prejudice happens, how um, how bias happens, at a mechanical level, then how could we possibly imagine we could control this into the future, right, in terms of merging this with a machine and then basically superpowering it? Yeah. What do you think? Well, I think that's where it is uh, important to... Um, talk a little bit about what actually is possible right now and what isn't possible. And I think you're right. You know, there are, there are some brain systems that we don't understand uh, that well or that are more complicated than others. Um, but there are some brain systems we do uh, understand well enough to be able to interact with them. And I guess the general way that I would split that up is that motor and sensory systems in the brain are fairly straightforward in the sense that they have very... Um, regular maps in the cerebral cortex. So one of the uh, first people to uh, physically do this kind of brain mapping in in the human brain um, was uh, Wilder Penfield and his colleagues at the Montreal Neurological Institute in the 40s and 50s. And they would do this in neurosurgery. So instead of, you know, implanting something like Elon Musk is going to do, you'd have the person's scalp open during a neurosurgery and you could deliver little bits of current to different locations in the brain and just see what happened. You know, you'd sort of zap in one place and the finger would move and you zap in another place and maybe their shoulder moves. And by doing that, he was able to map out, for example, the motor cortex of the brain, where there's a very regular map of the muscles in the human body, where if you stimulate those, you're going to produce a little muscle movement. And is that, and and it, and I'm, I'm sorry, let me interrupt you because I'm, I'm always thinking about this. Is that universal? Do we find one for one for one, you open up somebody's scalp, you hit these spots, and that's what happens? Uh, more or less. Uh, I, I've done some research on that myself in terms of the sensory cortex. So right behind the, the motor primary motor cortex is the primary sensory cortex, where you have these maps of the human body in terms of their sensory input. So if you stimulate there, the person's going to feel a little tingle in somewhere in the body. We did a study um, with uh, functional brain imaging looking at um, if we... Uh, train a computer algorithm to learn something about how my brain responds to uh, touch, 
actually we, we use the observation of touch, but this is a very similar thing. Um, can it then predict what's happening in your brain based on touch? And, and we found enough regularity in the cerebral cortex maps that we could tell from one person's brain what was happening in another. It's not an exact correspondence, but the general layout of the body parts is the same, just like the general layout of you know faces is the same. You have two eyes above a nose. Everyone's face is a little bit different, and everyone's uh, post-central gyrus is a little bit different. It has little bit different curves and angles to it, but the general layout is, is pretty similar. And certainly, everybody has their primary cerebral cortex on that particular gyrus. Gyrus is one of the hills in the cerebral cortex. Oh, the, okay. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah, and the cerebral cortex is the very surface layer of the brain. It's a thin layer of nerve cells um, that is uh, where our highest cognitive functions are. It's only a few millimeters thick, and you know, uh, very fortunately for people trying to interact with it, it's on the surface of the brain. And that's why these devices that are implanted into the skull are able to reach out these little electrodes, these little hair-like hair wires to interact with the cerebral cortex. So if you're trying to uh, read off the motor cortex, like in, in the, the Neuralink demonstration that they did recently, they had one of these implanted in the motor cortex of or actually, I think it was in the sensory cortex of the, of the pig. And every time the pig's nose was touched, you could see the action potentials firing there. So these motor and sensory things are fairly easy to read. Um, if you're going to do something like uh, reading off the motor cortex in order to control a prosthetic limb, that's something that's been done in a laboratory, for example. So I think motor functions and sensory functions are kind of a low-hanging fruit here when it comes to brain-computer interfaces. But when you get into more complicated things like memory and um, you know, more complicated perceptions and thoughts and decision-making, it's much more complicated and it's going to be much more difficult to, to build those interfaces. Exactly. I think we're dealing with the difference between, you know, again, low-hanging fruit. This was the first layer of discovery. This was the first order of where we could go to that we could get physical universe direct confirmation that we were this point controls the index finger, right? Right index finger, right? It was like, it's unvariable, there it is. We hit this thing, that finger moves 100% of the time and you go, good, there it is. When you get into, yeah, I think they, but you get into the more complex systems. And I think that's what we're really dealing with is the complexity of the systems. I was listening to, um, there's, a, there's a guy who loves going on, uh, Rogan, Lex Friedman, and he talks about mathematical systems, computer guy and, and uh, science guy. And he, and he talks about the, the fact that we don't yet have a math that really takes into account the level of complexity of the systems that are going on when you talk about mapping the neurons of the brain. I mean, it's it's this incredibly complex system. Um, where are we at on that <laughs> in, in, in layman's terms, so to speak? It's incredibly complex. I mean, we're, we're certainly not at the point where we can manipulate the system because in order to manipulate the system, you really have to have a pretty deep understanding of how, number one, you have to have an understanding of how it works. And number two, you have to have uh, the right kind of inputs. I mean, just injecting current into the brain is a very, very crude form of input. So if you have all these networks of neurons that are firing action potentials, the action potentials is one part of the process. And if you inject current, you might be able to change, say, the frequency of action potentials. But you have these network effects and the strength of connections between the various neurons, the way the individual synapses function. And those things are very hard to manipulate. I and mean, I know how you manipulate the strength of a particular neural circuit in, in the way that you want to. 
at this point with our current technologies. So I do think like looking to the very, very far future, maybe it's possible to do that kind of stuff. But simply by putting a few electrodes in there, you're only going to be able to do some of the simple things like manipulating um, little muscle twitches or movements. Or you know, possibly if you do it in the visual cortex, you might get something like visual phosphenes, which are little you know, glitters of light. But to, you know, contrast that with creating a full-fledged percept where you see, I don't know, an elephant riding through the sunset, you're going to have to have a much, much, uh, you know, orders of magnitude more control over the dynamics of the system. Yeah, big time. Plus, how do you, how do you simulate, how do you show somebody something they've never seen before or experienced before? It's not there in the brain to be remembered as a memory, so you're going to have to composite it. So that means you're really going to have to understand how this system works because composites of imagery are, I imagine, are, are, are not just a matter of reading off, you know, what the eye is showing in the back of the brain, but it's a matter of bringing this thing called, that we verily understand called imagination into it. Mm-hmm. How, 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 again, I, I, I keep trying to nail you down to numbers and stuff, and you're very good at, at sort of, well, I don't really know about that quite yet. Uh, no, no, no. It's and it's good. It's good. I'm not. I'm not even like being critical. But um, like imagination. Do we have any neurological understanding yet of how that works? We do. And actually, in my lab, we've done some studies on uh, brain reading of imagination. Yeah. So what? being able to um, look, you know, look at what happens when somebody. We we did some studies on imagining sounds, for example. We asked people to imagine different kinds of sounds and. What we were able to do is from the patterns of brain activity in the auditory cortex of the brain, this is the part of the temporal lobe that receives information from the ears, ultimately, not directly from the ears, but eventually. Um, From the patterns of activity in auditory cortex during imagination, we were able to determine what sound people were imagining. And so what we believe is happening is that the brain recreates the initial experiences through these kind of top-down processes. So that lower sensory cortices end up kind of re-instantiating the experiences that we have when we're really experiencing something. So we know about it to that extent, that imagination seems to be a kind of a replay uh, of of real experiences in the sensory cortices of the brain. Similar things have been done with visual imagination. Well, that's interesting. Am I understanding this right, that that would limit one's imagination to experience? Or to the units of an experience, like you said, you can always composite things. So yeah, I think there's, you know, you can't imagine something that you have no basis for imagination, but I can certainly imagine, um, I don't know, you with a elephant head. I don't know why I'm stuck on elephants today. <laughs> That's a composite that I've never, never seen before. Right, right. Okay, well, that's actually in and of itself a fascinating piece of information because that tells us that, you know, our, because we're so, we so categorize, we, we so take in information and then, okay, this fits here, this fits here, this fits here. And then imagination is sort of, you know, imaginatively reimagining these things in composites we have not experienced. But wow, that is, that is, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe infinity is not the limit of our imagination uh, as, as that is that way. Where do you think, um, it seems to me, actually, I don't know, did you get um, Elon Musk's presentation as a recruitment seminar? Uh, he, yes, he explicitly labeled it as a recruitment he seminar. He did. Okay, good. I didn't see that part, so. He failed to recruit me. Yeah. 
Oh, I wondered because I did go to the Neuralink site and I looked on the jobs and they're all engineering mainly. And I noticed that there, I was a little surprised and maybe I, you know, I can't say that I know what his crew or his, you know, his, his uh, staff list looks like, but I am, I'm more than a little concerned about the cognitive psychology end of of this. It's not, you know, people who have commented on this or talked about this, because we've seen articles in Forbes and MIT and various other technological review sites and things talking about Musk's presentation and saying, hey, look, he's talking a really big talk, but let's talk reality. We're nowhere near the kind of promises he's making when it comes to being able to have the lame walk or the blind see, much less, you know, computer-assisted telepathy. These are these are far, far, these are almost sci-fi concepts still, but here's Musk pumping this out there. Do you think he might need some more cognitive psychiatrists or neuroscientists on board before he starts making those promises? Maybe. I mean, yeah, they do have neuroscientists on the on the team, and there was at least one neuroscientist who spoke there and um, seemed to know what they were doing. So, you know, I do think that they are really focused on making a usable product, and it seems like a lot of what they want is people that, you know, I think they feel comfortable with the neuroscience, and what they want to do is push it towards some a marketable uh, product that, that people can have, and I think you're right that the 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 um, the worry there is that the um, push towards marketing happens faster than the understanding of the neuroscience does. Now, how close are they to something like uh, telekinesis or getting people to walk? I don't know. I, I got the impression from watching it that the medical um, miracles that they were sort of promising are a bit of a cover story. I mean, I, I feel like their their real motivation is they think it would be cool if this worked and they want to see it happen um, because it would be very sci-fi, uh, which is totally a legitimate um, motivation. And I have it myself. But then, you know, framing it in terms of the, the medical uses is a more palatable way to deliver the product to the public is, is sort of how it seems to me. I mean, one of the easiest things that, that you could probably come up with as a product from this that, that would be um, relatively easy to do is something like telekinesis, right? If you have this thing uh, connected to your motor cortex and you connect it to your remote control, it should be fairly easy to change the channel without picking up the remote control. You just send a motor signal from your motor cortex, flip the channel up or down, something like that. We can probably already do that with um, less invasive uh, brain-computer interfaces, whether they be from EG or, or, or whatever. Um, but, you know, so there are certain things that you could turn into a product that that uh, that wouldn't be that far off. Wow. So, OK, that's that's actually good to know, because that starts giving me some boundaries now of where we're actually at. And um, and I want to understand that because I don't want to make it seem like this is all just some bizarre fantasy. And maybe I'm coming off that way. And I don't mean to. I just I'm concerned. I'm concerned about this going at a pace that outpaces our thinking about the ethical ramifications of it. That's where I always come down on this stuff. And I have good reason to, because the history of science sometimes goes in bad directions, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> I know, I don't know what I'm talking about. I know, it's true. Uh, so, so I'm a little concerned about that. Now, I'm also, of course, concerned about, you know, what we already have with AI and that sort of thing. 
when it comes to how how do you see from your experience knowledge and 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 formal you know what you're doing you know with your job how do how do you do you keep up with or keep tabs at all on where we're at with AI versus humans? Yeah, a little bit. Um, and there's you know AI. The confidence in artificial intelligence has waxed and wanes over the years um, that I've been involved in cognitive science. You know, there's a real um, surge of interest in artificial intelligence back in the '70s and '80s, and I think that wave kind of subsided as people um, got a little bit jaded at that things weren't progressing as fast as they were, and we came up against certain walls in artificial intelligence, and it became much more popular to think that AI was really never going to. Uh, rise. And then with increases in computing power and the um, uh, progress in uh, machine learning and, and deep learning techniques, there's been a new surge in in hope or, or optimism about the potentials of artificial intelligence to, to reach or surpass human human levels. And I don't know if that's going to happen or if we're going to hit another one of these walls and, and things will, will come back down for another ride. But again, it's more of one of these like short-term horizon versus long-term horizon things. I think in the in the very long-term horizon, there's just uh, very little reason to think we won't ultimately have artificial intelligences that exceed human intelligence capacity in right. terms of general artificial intelligence. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and in fact, in, in some ways, from certain points of view, we've already passed that point. You know, we have computers that are doing things, programming themselves, rewriting their own code. In other words, um, we have algorithms that are beyond the control of the people who wrote them, so to speak. They're doing things they don't necessarily fully understand. This all comes out of social media, social dilemma documentary and other other work when you look into some of this stuff. And I think that was actually my my sort of object lesson or, or case study and why I'm concerned about the Neuralink and the and the efforts being made in that direction is because already with the keyboard interfaces and the social media networks that we've established, these platforms are working against, they are leveraging our psychology against us because they were built in such a way that they didn't really understand what how our psychology works. I, I do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, yeah, so or I mean really they were also built um in order to get people rich, right? And and the right. the interest of of um, building wealth for the inventors does not always align with the well-being of the uh, customers. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And unfortunately, all of us have been part of this, you know, sort of mass hypnosis, mass psychology experiment that's been going on for the last twenty years, and now we're seeing the results in a divided culture across the world, and and a lot of of negative ramifications of this. It's not that the technology itself is inherently bad. But these algorithms are leveraging things about the way we think that we didn't really understand about ourselves. And that's what I find most fascinating and, frankly, a little disturbing is the, the eagerness with which to move forward before we really understand where we're even at. And that's why I love talking to you, because I want to understand where we're at. You know, And like, for example, I think it's a fairly high level of understanding of our psychology at this point that we are not, to, to, to understand that we are not truth machines. 
our brains are not designed, if I understand this right, and, as, and I am asking, you know, with our, with our cerebral cortex and the way we process information, it's not done with a purpose to find truth. It's designed to make us make sense of the world. And those are two different things. True, you know, it, it, does that does that does that little bit make sense? <laughs> yeah, it does. I mean, well, the basic thing we're designed to do is to stay alive, right. and and uh, you know, staying alive is a cooperative um, venture at this point, and and staying alive re- requires that we have strong relationships with others, and so maintaining those relationships that that keep us alive and give us the kind of social bonds that we need. Uh, can be prioritized and can be more important in our system than making sure what we believe is true. So I think in that sense, you're right. We're not, we're not optimized necessarily to find the truth. We, we certainly uh, benefit from having models of the world that allow us to make accurate predictions. And if our models of the world are really far off in a way that gets us in danger, ultimately that's not good for us. So it's not, you know, I don't want to give the impression that we have no interest in, in being correct about things. We do, right? If we think this particular plant is not poisonous and it is, that's, you know, we're screwed. Um, but there are other um, interests at play and, and, and social bonding is one of the important ones that, that can throw us off. Big time. And it's this bit of a struggle between these things because we are incredibly socially evolved creatures, com- you know, comparatively. There's all kinds of levels and strata to every one of our individual human relations that are that are quite complicated. I, 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 I wonder, though, you know, we also make assumptions about humans being more or or more of anything compared to, say, animals. Yet a lot of the testing that uh, that has led to us understanding ourselves comes from testing fish, pigs, animals, right? Guinea pigs, monkeys. I mean, are we really that much more advanced than these lower, quote-unquote, life forms? We share so much of our biology and so much of our nervous systems with, um, you know, our, our close relatives, the primates and as you say, even with fish, a lot of the biochemistry is this, is the same. So yes, I'd say you know there's so much of us is similar, and the parts that are different are in some ways a drop in the bucket. I mean, we share 99% of our DNA with chimpanzees. On the other hand, little differences can make a big difference. You know, there are one of the differences between humans and and um, and uh, other primates is, is language and language makes conceptual language makes such a big difference and allows us to build culture and civilization. And certainly in that sense, um, we've done a lot more with that little bit of extra. Um, to tie that with uh, artificial intelligence makes you wonder what an artificial intelligence with just a little bit more than us is going to be capable of doing, right? Big time. I mean, and this is where Musk comes from. And he's, and he's not wrong. I mean, if we could... You know, consolidate. If we could uh, incorporate with, you know, a higher level of of uh, data access, of memory processing, of computational power, you know, then maybe the sky really is the limit for us in, in in some ways. Maybe we could figure out problems that that thus far have eluded our ability to think them through, like the complex math necessary to even understand the system. One wonders, can we make the system without that? <laughs> can we get there and then back figure it out? We seem to, that seems to be how our progress moves forward, is we seem to accidentally stumble on some amazing piece of thing that we needed to know, and then we back figure out why that works. <laughs> you know? It's true. It's true. 
I mean, in this whole conversation, I want to be clear that I want this thing in my brain. I at least, I at least want to try it out. I feel like we are in a strange um, point in the evolution of our relationship with technology where we have a lot of benefits from it. You know, like the amount of information that's available on just Wikipedia, for example, is amazing. But the fact that I have to disconnect my attention from the world and look down to this little device that I have in, in front of me in order to access it is a huge problem. I mean, it, it creates social disconnect. Eye contact is messed up with everybody. If I could just access that information on the fly using my mind, I could look something up from Wikipedia while we're having this conversation so that I could incorporate it into what we're talking about. I want to be able to do that. You know, I got to tell you, I, I see the benefits and I, I'm always going to be the guy who's going to raise the alarm because I've had the experiences I've had where I, you know, dived in when I didn't know everything that I should have known and, and then, you know, faced decades of repercussions as a result. So, of course, I'm going to do that. But I am also excited about the possibilities or potentials of it, too. Oh, I'm sorry, were you going to say something? Well, what if you had, you know, uh, speaking of potentials like that, what if you you could build in through policy or law, something like, you know, how on, on Twitter now they have those little um, warning signals when the tweet may be uh, disingenuous or something. <laughs> this tweet might be hazardous to your mental health. <laughs> if you encounter something that somebody says that might be hazardous to your mental health or might be, might be trying to suck you into something, if you got a little warning from your implanted AI, that could help. And there's a lot of ways to imagine these things being beneficial if the right systems were in place. Actually, that's very true. That's very true. In fact, let me share something with you that you might find amusing and it builds on our memory episode, like what we did last time. A very funny skit, old skit from the 80s that we were watching, uh, I think it was just last night on Saturday Night Live. Paul Simon was in this little skit where people were coming up to him. The, the idea was he was standing in line in a movie theater with a date. And people kept coming up to him, fans, telling him, oh, yeah, I saw you here. I saw you there. And, this, and the joke was that he remembered in detail every single one of them. Right. Where I mean, I stood in the crowd in 1975 at the concert in the park in Central Park. And he goes, oh, yeah, you were the one with the red blanket and you were and you said more. Yeah, I, I was glad you were there. You know, I, he, he remembered like these hyper specific details, but it did not interrupt the flow of the conversation in any way. And it made me think of that when you were just talking about, yeah, if you could do that without having to go, oh, hang on a second. Who are you again? What? Got to look that up in my phone. Got to look that up somewhere. If you just just could just know that stuff. Garfunkel comes up and he has no idea who he is. Right? He did. He that was the that was the final joke at the end of the at the end of the skit. That's right. So you know, so there is an idea of you know a memory feat that, of course, very very a handful of humans would actually be able to pull off right now. Could itself be a curse if it was an organic problem that you were you know as we talked about that you were like stuck with having to remember every single little detail of every single day, that would be a curse. But to have the ability to draw the information up at will right. and, and be able to do it accurately, now that's a whole different, that changes humanity at right. a fundamental level. Or to turn it off if you chose not to do that. Right. right. I mean, 
with some control. I think control over the information that comes into our minds is going to be an ongoing problem. And we, we certainly see it on social media now, and it could be an even bigger problem if there's a chip implanted in our brains that allows information to flow in. We have to worry about things like, you know, is an advertisement going to pop up in my visual field because it's being piped in by, by, by somebody who's controlling the information feed. That's Google. right. Is Mr. Pillow going to try to sell you something this week? <laughs> and there, there it goes across your visual cortex, right? Usually you're lying down in your pillow and then it comes up. But wouldn't it be better if it... Yeah, I don't think we want any of that. And in fact, that's the whole that's the whole problem with the way social media platforms have been programmed is that they were programmed on an advertiser-based attention economy. And uh, and and that has turned out to be absolutely catastrophic to our mental health uh, and our social well-being, really. You know, um, as a as a direct result of that. So hopefully, we will be seeing a lot more work in that direction to to get that sort of um, Pandora's box closed or altered or something. Yeah, or something. I mean, we can learn from that experience and put in place policies going forward so that these new technologies are not subject to that same problem that we've learned is not good for us. Now, that would be a really important thing for us to do. Exactly. I, as long as we can learn from our mistakes, I have hope for us. As a species, I mean. You know, and it seems that some problems we take a bit longer to get around to recognizing the problems with than others. It's uh, it's it's difficult, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Well, where are um? Oh, okay, so let me let me think about this here because I want to get back on the um, Neuralink thing. If you could right now describe the best thing we could do in terms of, you know, like the highest form of where we're at in a, in a human technology hybrid, what, 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 do you, what comes to your mind? Where, where are we at in terms of the real penultimate of, of, of practical technology right now? In terms of what we could do with this technology, you mean? Yeah. And I, think, I think paralysis is probably one of the, one of the um, things that's really within our grasp to be able to solve. And this is a, just an issue of communication between different parts of the nervous system that can be severed. And if you can bypass that communication through some kind of wireless technology that goes directly from the brain to the muscles in, in the limbs, um, that seems like something that's really worth doing that we could absolutely accomplish. Wow. That would be amazing. I, I wasn't sure how far along we were with that. They talk about how when you are training people who are paralyzed, I was watching a couple of videos here this morning about some of this, and there were people who are laying in bed, completely unable to move, who can control a dot on the screen, right, in, in, in a direction to, you know, starting this, this program forward of controlling literally with the brain alone what's going on on a screen. Um, yeah, are we further than the dot moving? Well, we've done it with monkeys. They've been able to connect a monkey brain to um, a robotic arm, and then the monkey can learn to manipulate and control the arm and, and pick things up. And um, you know, the freaky thing is that because the signals are coming from the monkey's brain and being sent to the robotic arm, the arm doesn't need to be in the same place as the monkey. There was one demonstration of this where the arm was you know, connected in another lab halfway across the country, and then the signals were sent over the internet and the monkey could control the arm on the east coast from the west coast for example 
that opens up so many possibilities with robotics as well. Yeah. Wow, I, I hadn't even thought about that. Think of sort of controlling a, a big construction machine arms with, with your brain and the way those uh, kind of like the, the exoskeletons in the Avatar movie, um, but from a distance. Right, because that opens the door to a deep, deep ocean exploration. I mean, as far as you can get a signal down. Yeah. You get a signal down there, you know, and but but we're talking about controlling with the brain directly. I mean, that's pretty wild. Yeah. So, because then you're then it's a whole different training paradigm. You don't have to sit there and train the person on all this complex machinery. They just hook them up, and and then they just know what you know. Wow, wow. It may take some learning how to control the implant. You know, it isn't necessarily the case. I don't think this has been done enough in humans to know. But uh, I'm pretty sure that in the in the monkey research, which again is not something I follow that closely, but I believe there's a learning period where the monkey has to feedback has to learn the different the signals that I send through my brain. What does it actually cause the arm to do exactly? And, and you can kind of adjust over over some period of time. So there may be a learning curve there, and learning how to yeah. There was, and there, they certainly mentioned that with the per, with the paralyzed patients as well. That 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 in fact they were saying this is one of the. In comparing this to the promises of Neuralink, they were saying, whoa, 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 hey, guys, yeah, but there's a learning curve here, too. And I don't know that probably the best way to describe it is um, is the same way you have to learn how to write or you have to learn how to pick up a can. I mean, these are childlike things that we just take for granted, but there was a period in time where you didn't know how to do these things and you had to train your brain and body to learn how to do them. And I think it's, is it, it's kind of a parallel to that, right? It is. And the motor cortexes and sensory cortexes are pretty plastic and you can adjust to things like this. And so I, I imagine the brain would be pretty adaptable to being able to control some new external limb or something like that. Right. Um, I, I will say the other thing is that as a neuroscientist, one of the things that's exciting about this is just the opportunity to collect all of this data. I mean, we're talking about things we don't know about. We, it's difficult to get recordings directly from the human brain. We uh, typically, um, most neuroscientists don't have access to the physical brain because, um, you know, for the purposes of learning about, say, we're going to do our study on uh, belief, it's not really ethical to open up somebody's head for that purpose, right? <laughs> so we do use it, not- do it. Sacrifices must be made. <laughs> well, we use not, that's why we use neuroimaging because you know they're less invasive, but they're also much more indirect. And the information that we get from functional MRI is is many um, uh, events downstream from the actual neural activity, from the actual action potential. So the opportunity to record directly from the brain is very rare. But sometimes we have it in the uh, case of uh, when there are going to be surgeries. We can uh, work. I worked once with a neurosurgeon at, at UCLA who was doing neurosurgery plans. To record uh, seizure activity, and we would use those opportunities to record uh, from the person doing various psychological tasks, and we could learn something about them. But those opportunities are very rare, and you don't always get to pick where the electrodes are going to be. So, with something like this, with the Neuralink, where if it really is as uh, uninvasive as they claim, where you can go in on uh, you know just for a few hours without general anesthesia and have this robotic surgeon carve a little piece out of your skull and drop this thing in, which plugs the hole and glue it back up. And then if you're someone like you, the hair would grow over it. Someone like me, I'd be able to scar. Uh, if it is that non-invasive, then we're going to have, and you know, we have thousands of people doing this, we're going to be generating tons of data from the brain 
that we didn't have otherwise, you know, these actual direct recordings from the surface of the cortex. And that's incredibly valuable information. That's a good point. That's a good point. And we need it too, because as you say, it's, it's, it's difficult and rare. The, it, so it, am I understanding this right, though? I want to make I want to say this for the audience as well. Is so so this 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 cortex, this couple millimeter layer of of surface of of our brain, it, it, that's something that we have that that no one else has to that to the same degree. Is that right? It's a numbers game, and do we have more of that than anything else on the planet. Well, uh, yeah, cerebral cortex is not unique to humans. Cerebral cortex. Yeah. Is- in, in many other uh, animals. What you see as you uh, move through the animal kingdom, if you compare something like a rat to a dog, to a chimpanzee, to a human, is more and more folding of the cortex. And so we have a lot more folded cortex. You see a lot more of those lumps and grooves when you look at the human brain. And that's because we're increasing the amount of surface area. The cerebral cortex is essentially a two-dimensional structure. You can think of it like a piece of paper that's crumpled up to fit inside the brain. And, you know, if you have a bigger piece of paper, the more you, you have to crumple it up more to fit in the same space. That's, that's sort of nature's solution to get it, getting us more surface area in the cerebral cortex. Instead of growing huge heads, we grow more, uh, more convoluted cortices. Right. And how does that compare? So it's not necessarily... So, okay, so surface area. Um, but it doesn't seem to hold that size of the brain leads to com- more complex thinking or rational thought as we understand it or something because we look at whales say or larger creatures and they don't seem to have language or anything developed the way we do right if you do something like size of the brain relative to the size of the body then you get what looks more like a correlation with intelligence but it's still oh. not correlations you're right like elephants have huge brains it's just the cash i'm I don't know why I, I'm not intending to talk about elephants all the time today. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's an after effect from our last show about elephants and memory and all that. Yeah. Um, but you're, but yeah, just having a big brain does not, um, does not necessarily mean anything. Um, but having having more brain relative to to your body size might mean a little bit more. Interesting, interesting. Okay, I was always kind of wondering about that correlation. I never had a chance to ask you about it. Okay, so for whatever reason, we've got this thing that we get to use this way, where we get to think very, very highly complicated thoughts and and establish very complicated social hierarchies that that other creatures, you know, have shades of, but not the same level of complexity that we have for. For whatever reason, we're still trying to break down why that is. Um, so this isn't then something that you think we should be afraid of. I think we should be cautious. I don't know if fear is the right word, but yeah, caution is probably probably good. But no, I don't think we should outright dismiss it out of fear. I don't think it would be rational to do that. I think it's important to think through what the what the what the benefits are and um and to proceed cautiously yeah that's been and i was i was it was a real question i wasn't asking a loaded question there i wasn't sure where you know i've i when i don't know enough about a thing i try to find out more by people like yourself who 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 can tell me (laughs) and then adjust my attitude accordingly right (laughs) yeah i know but well you know when it comes to something like the future we're all uh, pretty ignorant (laughs) so 
nobody has, the, I think the part of the reason we need to have caution is because of that, that nobody really knows exactly what is going to happen with technology like this and what, what the uh, consequences of incorporating it into humanity will be. Yeah, exactly. Because I'm trying to think right now, even if we could boost memory, like the way we talked about the Paul Simon example, right? If we could, if we could do that, like fairly straight away, or if that was a, an achievable goal, the real question for me is not, should we do that? Or could we do that? The question I ask, and maybe this comes down to me wearing some kind of ethicist hat or something is, is what are the unintended consequences of doing that? You know, yeah, we get all this wonderful, but you know, it's very easy to see benefits right away. Oh, yeah, we're not looking at the phones, we interact better, improve sociality. So you go good. But what are we not thinking right now? You know, and I was wondering, you know, you're in the field, not the, the not the Neuralink field, but you're in the field of, of trying to figure out, you know, why we think how we think and, and, and what's going on there. Do you see people in the field push back like that? Are there ethicists? Are there people who are concerned about the unintended consequences of, of, where, of where some of this is going? Absolutely. I mean, I um, in, in preparation for, I knew we were going to talk about this today, I did an informal uh, survey of, of my colleagues um, just this morning, and everybody's uh, first reaction is like, whoa, wait a minute. Wait, is, that, is, that, is that a good thing to do? Should we be doing that? Is that, you know, what are the ethical consequences of it? Um, what are the unintended consequences? I think um, the people in academia, at least, are naturally cautious. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting in, uh, in seeing how uh, Neuralink has um, positioned themselves and in some of the language that comes out of Elon Musk about this. Um, and he had some uh, comments on Twitter about how uh, academics basically just sit around and question things and never get anything done. And uh, there's definitely some, some truth to that. You know, his goal is to, is to make things happen. Uh, and to do that requires having a sort of vision and pushing things forward beyond what other people think are possible. And so he has to have that orientation. And so there's a sort of two poles of, you know, you're trying to figure out where is the, um, the balance point there between um, being too gung-ho about this thing in order to make it happen um, on the one hand and being too just sort of like fearful and irrational, irrationally worried about it on the other hand. And I, you know, I personally fall somewhere in the middle where I think it's uh, it's important to think through what the consequences are. I think we should be, I think we have the time to do that. You know, I don't think that this is going to happen tomorrow, despite what what they're trying to to sell us on. So I think we should begin that process. This conversation is part of that, of thinking through what the consequences of having a technology like this are. Uh, I think our, our government should be involved in this. This is something we should be thinking about what the policies are with respect to uh, brain implants and human machine interfaces and what's going to be allowed and what isn't going to be allowed. And hopefully we can draw on what we've learned from social media for that. This is something that our, our society should be preparing for, not necessarily trying to stop, but preparing for. I agree because I don't think it can be stopped. I don't think there is such a thing as 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 getting the genie back in the bottle. But I do think that you know careful consideration is really important and we've seen over and over again through history the sort of push forward by exactly the Elon Musk types, the innovators, the the dreamers, the visionaries. We want those people. I'm not I'm not anti-visionary. I I'm all about that. I I support 
many of Elon's visions, actually, you know, especially space travel. I'm huge on that. I, I see that where many, many people right now are like, fuck Mars, fuck space exploration. We don't need any of that. We got problems right here on Earth. And it's kind of like, yeah, that's the point. That's exactly the point of why we need to be looking up in space and figuring out how we're going to get out there. And then the exact opposite, the inner space, right? And how do we get in there and how do we figure that out? But it can be done right. It can be done wrong. And sometimes it can be done mega wrong. And I think I think the thing that concerns me is the is the ethical implications of some of this because if you go about creating a few supermen and they're empowered beyond anything any of us could even imagine, then suddenly all of us are at the mercy of their ethics. Right. And, uh, you know, even if it's not a few supermen, this is something that one of my uh, students brought up this morning, um, you know, access to this technology, even if it's sort of widely available, depending on uh, how it's sort of equally distributed among the population, is something that can uh, exacerbate inequality um, across people, right? You're taking the sort of financial equality that is, you're translating it now into cognitive inequality because you're enhancing the cognitive power of of people with uh, more wealth. And so that's something to think about as well. That's right. Exactly. This is this. And this is where we take our most basic impulses, uh, ideas, uh, directives, if you will, of why we act the way we do. And we and, and if we exacerbate those without understanding them, then we end up with another social dilemma. And if that's out in the real world and not just in a virtual world of hyper, you know, of a virtual space, if that's in the real world now, there could be, you know, tremendous repercussions and consequences to that. So I, I agree that I think we, I think it's, I think it is silly to think we're going to, we're going to stop it. But I do think that now is the time to really, really, really be thinking about this very, very hard. So I want to thank you for helping me to do that. <laughs> sure. Did, was there um, was there anything else about this that you wanted to get across that I did not ask you about? Because I know you've been thinking about this quite a bit as well. Yeah, no, I think we covered the the spectrum of it. I think uh, the, you know, I guess the other thing, I, one uh, point that I would want to like to make is that. Um, I, I do think it's important for us to, you, you talked about going to Mars and how that's something you're re- really interested in. And, you know, that's something that inspires a lot of people to think about going to space. And there's something valuable about that kind of scientific inspiration or, or about the kind of wonder that that uh, such a, a venture in, inspires in people. And I think the same thing is possible for this kind of connection. You know, there are a lot of us that are really interested in the possibilities of this and what we can do in terms of uh, developing our humanity and going beyond uh, you know, the, the, the physical uh, boundaries of what we have right now that's, that's inspiring to people. And I do think it's important in the whole uh, conversation that while we also cultivate the caution, that we also cultivate that inspiration that led us to want to do this in the first place, because both are important. Yeah, exactly. What, what it actually sparks me to ask you this, because I've never asked you this before. You know, you're doing work that is right on the line of figuring out the brain and figuring out specifically how we think, why we think, what we think. Imagine, imagine we figured it out. You know, one, two, three lifetimes from now. I don't know. I don't know how long it's going to take, what, when the breakthrough is going to happen or breakthroughs that need to happen. 
How do you see humanity different as a result of understanding this thing at levels we do not understand it at right now? Yeah, that's an important question. It's one I've been thinking a lot about recently because, you know, at this point, the progress we've made in neuroscience, I don't think it's made that much of an impact on us, or at least it's hard to hard to see what exactly the impacts are. Um, but there are some, and I think, you know, just having a greater self-awareness, understanding ourselves better, allows us to control the process better, to... Um, steer towards well-being. There was a, a TV show in the 80s that I used to like called The Greatest American Hero. You ever see that show? Yes. Yeah, I love that show. <laughs> Given the superpowers, but on the first day, these aliens gave him superpowers, but on the first day, he lost the manual that they had given him. And so he, he didn't know how to fly. He had this whole power and, and he was basically figuring it out throughout, throughout the whole season. And, you know, that's what we want eventually is that it's to recover that manual so that we can unlock all of our powers and we can steer ourselves through the sky more effectively. Excuse me for that. That's right. Well, that, and that's exactly right. That's why I'm interested in it. You know, I want to, I want to get this thing so that we can help people not be gullible not not be silly not not let their emotional needs overpower their rational needs or or understandings you know and I, and there's cuz there's a there's a balance there and and we seem to be evolving in this direction where we can move towards rationality where we can develop the cerebral cortex more where we can figure out how to utilize it to to optimize it to to be you know, to, to lead better lives, safer lives, more productive lives. And I don't know. I don't know what else we could really ask for from this. You know, some people have ideas of immortality and stuff. I think that's a little silly, given that immortality is a bit of a curse, if you really think about it. But, but leading better, more productive lives, getting along better, understanding one another better, you know, interacting at a, at a deeper level. These are the kind of things that excite me about a, 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 a brain-machine hybrid and the potentials of it, you know? Yeah, one of those things you said in there we haven't probably haven't talked about enough, which is the potential for communication uh, between people. And, you know, a direct link between our brains could allow us to interact and to communicate in ways that we weren't able to before on, on a deeper level that transcends language, possibly. So that's, that's one of the, the real uh, promises of it. Yeah, big time. If I could sit here and conceptualize something and get that somehow over a wire to you where you're conceptualizing the same thing, I mean, man, you know, wow, what, what a, what a level of communication that we can really only dream about right now. You know, because we have to use words as this medium, and words are words are clumsy. Words are chunky sometimes. Sure. You know, when you really dig down, I mean, because I've I, in my background, I happen to have a, a bit of an understanding of how people understand words, and they understand them in radically different ways. Mm-hmm. And you can have two people saying the exact same words and meaning very different things. So it's so this could be a real important part of this whole thing exactly as you as you comment there well i guess we're gonna have to see what happens mm-hmm. <laughs> who's gonna be first to have this brain implant me or you oh i think it'll be you <laughs> i think it'll be you because you're because you're working there <laughs> 
But uh, but I think uh, I, I you know who knows we'll have to see what happens if you can go down to Best Buy or the Apple Store or something and pick up your implant and just kind of ding 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 and and there you go wow yeah you know what do you think oh yeah I wanted to ask you about this this is this is a purely physical aesthetic thing but you know the Matrix and these movies tend to tend to put the plug back at the brainstem. And then we see these these neurolinks actually going up here and, and attaching to the cerebral cortex. Is is that a big difference? I mean, is there is there? Do you think we'll ever do the brainstem, or what? What do you think that with that? The matrix thing in the back of the neck. I guess it's connected to the to the brainstem. It's not clear where where exactly it would be going in. Yeah. But yeah, the neurolink one makes sense because it's over the motor cortex, and that's you know right right over here. Um, so that's and the sensory cortex, which is what they're going for. I think if you wanted a, a visual one, would be in the back of the you know the cerebral cortex in the back of your head where the visual cortex is. So it's possible at some phase of this, we'll have little dots all over right. with different um, uh, different implants trying to reach different parts of the cerebral cortex. Yeah, exactly. Because what I what I got from the just just to sort of have some fun with this, the 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 brainstem connection in the Matrix and similar movies actually has this has this spike go into your head, quite deep, you know. So it's sort of this built-in thing that actually goes up into the brain is how I imagine they've they've sort of put this thing together. You don't want to stick things into the brainstem. <laughs> Maybe that sounds like a cool thing to say. But um, the brainstem controls a lot of the vital functions of the body, your heart beating, your respiration, and it's fairly easy to die if something goes into your brainstem. The cortex is more pliable. It's a bit safer. Um, there are, uh, we do implant um, deep brain stimulators, which go down into the um, thalamus or the basal ganglia sometimes for its treatments for um, movement disorders like Parkinson's disease. But that's something that you plant with one surgery that never comes out um, and just stays in there, hopefully. Um, this this thing is meant to be removable, which is why it's in the skull. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. Totally yeah. makes sense. Just something I was always wondering about, and I never had a chance to ask a neuroscientist about it. We have also, we do have um, I don't, the, the other um, sort of less invasive way of stimulating the brain. That, that hasn't come up in our conversation, which uh, I have done some work with myself in the past is transcranial magnetic stimulation. So this is where- Oh, you can... yeah. I wanted to ask you about this. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, you have a, 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 a coil and you put it up against the head and you run current through the coil and you turn the current on and off such that it creates a magnetic fluctuation and you can induce a current in the brain right underneath uh, the coil, and depending on where you point this thing, you can either stimulate uh, how you deliver the current. You can either stimulate the brain, or you can sort of inactivate temporarily one one region of the brain. If you do this over the motor cortex, just like with those little uh, neurosurgery experiments we talked about earlier, you can get little finger twitches depending on on where you aim it. So that's a way of doing it through the scalp, um, but it's obviously much much less precise than having those little uh, wires directly into the brain. Yeah, exactly. I've heard, I was reading um, just last week about that and how it has had positive results. Uh, all, it, what I was reading was that it was fairly uniform positive results in treating depression and anxiety. Uh, and I was very surprised by that because I've, I've barely heard of it as a, as, a, as a treatment modality or as a technology. Yes, and, and we uh, did an early experiment back when I was at UCLA on, on generalized anxiety disorder, and um, uh, 
we would deliver stimulation once a week to uh, people with the disorder, and then they did actually uh, improve over time. Um, so it's a way of dis- that was that particular type of stimulation is a way of disrupting the circuits that, in the brain that are um, probably engaged in kind of um, uh, counterproductive uh, loops that you're sort of interrupting. It's akin to the old electroconvulsive shock therapy that you would do with depression. Well, that's, yeah, I wanted to ask about that because ECT has always terrified me, but also from a precision point of view also seems to be a bit of a, you know, I've got a, I've got a sore finger. Okay, good. Let me take you and shove your body up against the wall and maybe I'll fix your sore finger. I mean, I really have had very big problems with ECT as a, as a, as a form of treatment because it's such a Hail Mary. Yeah. I mean, I think it gets a bad rap because of all the way, all the uh, movie appearances it's, it's made where well, over the cuckoo's nest was pretty yeah. like, whoa. Yeah. In fact, this is pretty effective. And uh, you're right. The, the, the TMS is, is a little bit less of a kludge. It's still kind of a, a kludge. Um, in the study that we did, we would actually use fMRI to localize a particular spot in the person's brain before um, then using that active brain activation to uh, precisely localize the TMS stimulation to a spot in that person's brain was activated when they were anxious. Um, so it's a much more precise way of doing it, but it's a similar principle. Yeah. Yeah. Similar. I, I, I guess I prefer the precision of it be only because, well, you know, I mean, with ECT, you get memory loss, <laughs> you, know, you get these other effects, you know, it's uh it's a little scary. But I am, but I am happy to see, you know, the progress that's being made here because we're all, you know, we're all trying, we're all trying to get to the same place. I mean, I, I think, I think we're all trying to get to a place where we're, where we're helping people and where we're able to, to be more effective in doing so, you know? So, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's funny that, that if you get into the history of psychiatry and stuff, you start getting into like the, the lobotomies and, as you know, some of the stuff that we now look at as barbaric was at the time cutting edge. Yes, I, I think that um, in in some some ways psychiatry has uh, earned the reputation that it, that the Scientologists have have given it. Right, um, but uh, you know, a lot of those treatments, um, you know, the brutality of them or the the apparent brutality of them is. Um, hard to understand in retrospect, um, but you also have to keep in mind that we didn't have a lot of the pharmaceutical interventions back then that we do now. You know, if you have a, a patient that's experiencing um, epilepsy, for example, and they're having seizures just all day long, um, and nowadays we would have all kinds of anticonvulsant medications that we would give them. But back in the 50s, there were various, you know, this neurosurgeons were trying everything they could possibly think of to make the seizure stop. And that often involved cutting pieces of the brain in ways that now seem kind of barbaric if you're not faced with the same problem. So, yeah, no, for sure. For sure. I, I have to always, you know, put out there hindsight bias is a thing and I and I don't want to engage in it. So it's it's. um so it's difficult. It becomes a difficult. It becomes a more nuanced conversation for sure. You know, because that because again, these were not necessarily people who were operating out of mal intent. Well, some of them may have been. I mean, oh, so just a couple, a couple for sure. But yeah, there's a couple of uh, well-known cases of, of people who certainly seem pretty crazy with the with the bottomies. Yes, yeah, the guy driving around giving them to people in his mobile home that was a bit much. 
yeah, that was a bit much. But yes, I, I, I get your point on that. Anyway, I don't want to end on a big downer. I just it kind of went there, and so I sort of. Well, you know, that's part of the that's part of the history of this kind of um, interacting with the brain and trying to physically interact with it. And you know, we we we've been talking as if these uh, implants are are voluntary, but it's worth uh, considering uh, the fact that. It's important that uh, obviously that they always are put in voluntarily and that we don't implant them in people against their will. But sometimes uh, voluntary can be a gray area. I mean, we may have incentives to implant these things in our uh, brains that make them, make them difficult to resist. You know, like right now, if you think about um, participation in social networks, it's very easy to say that you're not going to let your kid participate in a social network, for example, or not going to give them a phone. But then when they're in seventh grade and this is the way that all the kids interact with each other and there's no way to have a social life without it, then the, the pressure is very difficult to resist. That's and right. it's a similar situation with these um, brain implants, that if everybody has them and there's something that we can't participate in without having this thing put in our head, the line between voluntary and involuntary gets um, grayer. Big time. Big time. Very good point. And again, something I think we need to be monitoring and paying more attention to. Um, because our, cause clearly, our basic impulse is you want to keep up with the Joneses. It's just you don't even have to th it's those things that I say I, I always try to throw it under the umbrella of these are the things you don't have to think about they just happen it's just how you are and social hierarchies the existence of them yeah. just gonna happen so one-upmanship in the social hierarchy it's just gonna happen so how do we how do we control for that and try to implement this technology in such a way that it's more maximally beneficial minimally difficult or harmful you know and that's always the big key question with this stuff and it will continue to be our struggle <laughs> as we move forward i am sure but you know sparks more conversations like this one so it's always a good thing jonas thank you for taking the time to be part of my little world and podcast today i really appreciate it of course thank you for having me always a lot of fun awesome man and um and probably next time we'll uh, dive into another aspect of uh of uh, brain work that isn't quite so hypothetical. <laughs> hypothetical can be fun. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's fun to talk about, and it's and and you know, like I said, there's a lot of there's a lot of pros, there's a lot of cons here. There's a lot of food for thought. So I hope you guys will think about it out there, and uh, let me know in the comments what's your what's your feedback, what your thoughts are, where you think this is going. I'm I'm genuinely interested in everybody's take on this one. I don't think this is a thing of. You know, somebody's going to comment how awful we are for talking about this. This isn't a matter of that kind of opinion. I want to know what people think as far as where this tech is going and and the ethical and, and technological ramifications and consequences of it. So let us know. All right, guys. Uh, see you next time. <laughs> we'll just wrap up. Bye-bye.